look into the scriptures. Or please, uh, through your spirit, teach us what you have in store for us as we open your word. Help us to be those described in Isaiah 66 verse 2, the kind of people that you look to bless, people with humble and contrite hearts and those who tremble at your word. These words are not idle words. They are words that give life. So help us to approach your word with that kind of an attitude as your spirit works deep inside of us. Overrule uh, any mistakes that I'm prone to make and may your spirit bring out the truths as you intended for us to receive it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37 as we continue our survey through the book of Genesis today and Lord willing next week we will survey the last major section of this book chapters 37 to 50 a section that mainly focuses on the life of Jacob I'm sorry on the life of Joseph Jacob was last week on the life of Joseph the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons. And because there's much to learn from these chapters, I thought it would benefit us to split it into two parts. Today we're going to look at chapters 37 to 41, and Lord willing, the next time we'll cover chapters 42 to 50. If you remember last week, we saw how in the chart of Jacob's 12 sons, how I mentioned it was Judah the fourth son of Jacob through whom uh, the promised Messiah eventually came, the one who would fulfill all the covenant promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob. And uh, the question that immediately rises because of that is, why then is so much material allocated to Joseph, who is a, in a sense a peripheral character, and not Judah, the main character in the lineage? Well, there are two possible reasons why Moses gives 25% to uh, uh, the account of uh, Joseph. Reason number one is Joseph's family, uh, the, the Joseph story really explains uh, the Exodus narrative because it, it's through Joseph that the family comes to live in Egypt to avoid the devastating consequence of the famine that uh, occurred in their lifetime. Now think about this. If all these people had died because of the famine. They would, they would have just been in Canaan and they would have all died. Then the covenant promises would be in danger of being fulfilled. So they had to be preserved to be brought back into the promised land. And Joseph was the means through which God would preserve their lives. That's why this message, uh, this two-part message is titled as the God who preserved the covenant people. They need to be preserved for God to fulfill his promises. That's reason number one. Reason number two, Joseph's life is worthy of imitation. Even in the worst circumstances and the most extreme temptation, Joseph, Joseph remained totally faithful to God. His story, what a beautiful story it is, not only shows but also encourages us in the fact that God will use those of his servants who are obedient to accomplish his purposes even in the midst of great persecution and 
our position. So there's both a theological reason and a moral reason for Moses writing these chapters under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Theological reason is God would preserve his covenant people to fulfill his promises. The moral reason is Joseph's life is a life worthy of imitation. Genesis 30 verses 22 through 24 tell us how God remembered Rachel's cries and enabled her to conceive and give birth to her first child. That would be Joseph, the second son would be Benjamin later on. And she named the first one as Joseph. Now in chapter 37 verse 2, we are told that by now, Joseph is 17 years old. He's a young man. He's tending his father's flocks with few of his brothers. And we see a hint of the opposition that Joseph would soon face from his brothers as we read the last part of verse 2. You can see that there. Joseph brought brought their father a bad report about them. Joseph gives something negative about the brothers. The, the, the brothers we can see as we read further on, they're not of good character. So Joseph comes back and says, something is not right there. And verses 3 and 4 tell us how the opposition escalated, starting with parental partiality shown by Jacob. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, remember that was Jacob's new name given by God in chapter 32, verse 28. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. That word ornate traditionally rendered coat of many colors or even coat with long sleeves. But if you look at some translations, I think the ESV, the NIV for sure has it, says that the meaning for that word is uncertain. So some kind of a fancy robe that he uh, had prepared just for Joseph. Just for Joseph. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to them. So you see there what is happening with parental partiality. And verses 5 through 8 describe another reason why Joseph's brothers hated him. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers. They hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my leaf, my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. That phrase, they hated him all the more, appears twice in these few verses. And verses 9 through 11 describe Joseph having a second dream, this time related to how the sun, moon and 11 stars bowing down to him. Basically both the dreams kind of pointed to the same truth, that Joseph would be greater than all his family members, not just his brothers, but also his parents. This not only got the brothers becoming more jealous of him, but also led to Jacob rebuking him, though Jacob kept this matter in his mind. Remember Joseph Jacob knew a little, I'm confusing Joseph Jacob, so bear with me please. Uh, Jacob knew a little about God speaking through dreams, right? So he just keeps the matter in his mind as the story goes forward. Uh, Jacob sent Joseph to see his brothers who were watching the flocks near Shechem, a little away from home, and bring back word to him. Verse 18 says, 
But when the brothers, when they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. They're probably seeing him walking and coming. As they see him, they're putting into motion a plan to kill him. But Reuben, the firstborn, intervened to protect his life. Look at verses 21 through 24. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So there were some good intentions there. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Notice what happened next, verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal. Just stop there for a moment. Here's their brother and a cistern. And they're sitting down to have a meal. We read later in chapter 42, verse 21, the brothers recalling this incident, saying, Joseph cried for help. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. Once again, we see the power of jealousy, and that too among siblings. Solomon was spot on when he said in Proverbs 27 and verse 4, Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming. As bad as anger is and rage is. But who can stand before jealousy? Answer, none. None. Back to verse 25, chapter 37. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. On seeing this, now Judah is trying to protect Joseph. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? That's a good thing. He's trying to protect his life. But notice his words though in verse 27. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. I guess it's it's not okay to kill your brother, but it's okay to sell him. That's exactly what he says. I know he's trying to protect his life because he probably knew the brothers are, they want to get rid of him. That's again the power of jealousy, power of anger, bitterness and rage built over time. All they saw was that coat, once again, that sparked all the anger. Let's get rid of him. We sometimes might not be able to do it physically, but in our hearts a thousand times, we can kill people because of anger, rage, and jealousy, the deceitfulness of sin. According to verse 20, they ended up selling him for 20 shekels of silver, which by the way, 20 shekels was the price of a common slave during that time. Just keep that thought when next week we draw a more deeper contrast between uh, Jesus and Joseph. Apparently Reuben was not there when this happened. Maybe he was out there tending the flocks. When he came back, he's shocked. Okay, So, now the caravan is gone. What do you do? So they kill a goat, dip that goat in that goat's blood, take it back to Jacob to convince him that an animal had killed Joseph. Jacob was convinced that was the case and he was in mourning for a long time. His favorite wife, Rachel, dead. Now his favorite son, also dead. As a side note, 
Don't miss this. Jacob had deceived blind Isaac, pretending to be Esau, by putting on clothes of Esau per his mother's suggestion, Genesis 28, verse 15 and verse 27. Now, he was deceived, but also devastated by seeing Joseph's coat dipped in blood. Remember last week, as we mentioned Jacob's life, I said the reality of reaping what we sow. We have a choice of what we reap, what we sow. We don't have a choice of the consequences, what we reap. What a man sows, that will he reap. Do not be deceived. Galatians 6 makes it very clear. What we sow, we will eventually reap. And that's what Jacob is going through now. And the chapter ends in verse 36 with Joseph being taken to Egypt and sold to Potiphar, who was one of one of Pharaoh's officials. And Moses interrupts the flow here of Joseph's story in chapter 38. He gives us a record in the life of uh, Judah, through whom the covenant promises would pass down. The story involves Judah moving away from the family. Was it guilt? Could be. He's, he's moving away, seeing his father mourning. It's possible. He moves away and he lived in a, lived in a place called Adullam. And there he, he meets this guy. It was this, uh, chapter 38 talks about verse, uh, uh, verse 1. He goes to stay with a man named Hira. And many commentators believe that this guy was a total negative influence on him. He moves away, no parental pressure, and this guy would lead him to go down some paths that are not good. But he, he moves there and there. Uh, Judah uh, meets uh, this woman. Her name is unknown. Uh, all, all that we know, she's the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. So he marries her, yes, three sons. Three sons. And um, the first one was a fellow by the name Ur. He married a woman named Tamar. But Ur was wicked, so the Lord put him to death. And uh, Judah tells his second son, Onan, in keeping with the custom of the day, your brother died without having any children, and you're unmarried, so you take her as a wife and have uh, have children. But Er, uh, uh, but uh, Onan knew that that would not be his kid, so he does not fulfill the obligations. So God put him to death. The third one left his uh, this fellow, Shela, but Shela was very young. And Judah feared for his life. So he told Tamar, once he comes of age, he would have Shelah marry her. But a long time passed and Judah did not keep his word. So Tamar, knowing Judah, was not going to do that. And on one occasion when he was traveling to a place called Timnah, she goes there, uh, stays on the way there, dressed up as a prostitute, so he wouldn't recognize her. And uh, Judah, interestingly, goes with this um, uh, fellow Hira, so he propositions her, he has sexual relations with her. And as a result, Tamar bore two sons. You can read all this at your convenience later. She bore two sons, Perez, the younger son, and Zerah, the older one. What's important to note, the reason why Moses gives this is, Perez, the youngest one, appears in Matthew 1 verse 3 in the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Judah, through whom God would work out his covenant promises to bring in the ultimate seed, through whom all the Abrahamic blessings would be fulfilled. So chapter 38 exists to give us a clue through Judah 
even though this was a this was a messed up thing but god would bring even something glorious out of that again it was the younger chosen over the older so that's the reason genesis 38 is present it's a break in the narrative and now we're back to joseph's story joseph is now in potiphar's home he's a slave there Chapter 39 verse 2 says the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master and verses 3 through 4 tell us that even Potiphar recognized that that he was blessed because of the presence of Joseph and as a result he promoted him put him in charge of everything in his household and God blessed Potiphar even more as a result of uh, Joseph uh, being elevated but then the story takes an ugly turn Potiphar's wife notices that Joseph was a handsome man so she invites him to have sexual relations with her verse seven, the last part she openly said to Joseph come to bed with me brazen invitation what a strong temptation for a young man to face vast majority would have succumbed to this temptation he could have justified you know what this god that i trusted let me go through all this so who cares I can live any way I want. I can gratify the desires of my flesh. Plus, I'm not the one going after. She's the one coming after me. But as we notice Joseph's response, we can see why he is known as a godly man. Look at verses eight through ten. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house everything he owns he has entrusted to my care no one is greater in this house than I am my master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife how then could i do such a wicked thing and sin against god this is what a god fearing and a god conscious life looks like always living in the fear of god but such a god fearing life also considers the feelings of its neighbors joseph not only feared god but also cared for potiphar he didn't want to do anything that would hurt him he says because you are his wife how can i do this to the man who's been so good to me you're another man's property another man's cherished possession i cannot do this loving god and loving neighbor always go hand in hand but sin and temptation won't let go that easily look at verse 10 and though she spoke to joseph day after day that sin coming after you he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her underline that even be with her bad company corrupts good character he's being wise here mrs potiphar kept pressing joseph kept resisting not at all easy again for this young man who could have easily justified giving himself to her fed up with the resistance she finally took a drastic step look at verses 11 through 12 as we see what happens when uncontrolled lust takes over one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside she caught him by his cloak and said come to bed with me but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house notice joseph doesn't dialogue with her but ran there are times when you don't dialogue with sin you run you run yes 
Joseph lost his coat in that process but kept his character. Better to lose the coat than the character. That was Joseph's mindset. But the scorned woman twisted the entire story. She accuses Joseph of attempted rape. As a result, according to verse 20, he gets thrown into prison. But Potiphar just put Joseph in prison not to death. Remember, he's a slave. Those days, this was cause for death. Why did Potiphar not kill him, but put him in jail? Many believe Potiphar knew about his wife. But to save face, he needed to do something. So he just throws him in prison, but doesn't kill him. We're not told specifically this was the case, but he is in prison. He's in, he's in a prison where the king's prisoners were confined. But notice what happened next. Follow with me as I read the last part of verse 20 and all the way to verse 23, to the end of it. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Four times in this chapter alone we read that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 2, verse 3, and twice here, verses 21 and 23. Just as the Lord was with him in Potiphar's house, these verses tell us he was there with him in prison also. And chapter 40 tells us an important event that eventually would lead Joseph to getting out of prison. Again, another providential act by a sovereign God bringing about his plans for Joseph to fruition. The first four verses give us the setting. Chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer. The cupbearer was one who would be the king's taster, so to speak. But before the king would eat food or drink wine, the cupbearer would taste it. So if something was poisoned, long live the king, so long, cupbearer. That, that was his role. So every time he would drink and eat, he was putting his life on the line. That was this man's role. Which means there would be an intimacy with the Pharaoh. A closeness. He must have done something. Got the Pharaoh pissed off, so he threw him in prison. And also the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. So, these two were thrown in the very same prison Joseph was in. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them. The rest of the chapter explains how both the cupbearer and the baker each had a dream, which led to Joseph interpreting the dreams for them correctly, that the dreams were the baker would die, but the cupbearer would live. And notice what Joseph requested the cupbearer to do on his behalf when he gets released from prison, verse 14. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. And in keeping with Joseph's words, the baker died while the cupbearer was reinstated back into service. Now you would think such a story would end on a high note. But notice how the chapter ends. Verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph, but what happened? 
he forgot him. Why didn't God bring Joseph to his remembrance? Because God is sovereign over all things. Wait on that thought. It's easy to remember, easy to think or conclude, God also forgot. But often God's delays are beyond our understanding. And in chapter 41, we find chapter 41 opening with this, when two full years had passed. There's a small white space between 23 of chapter 40 and verse 1 of chapter 41. We just go over it quickly, but two years, day and night, imagine what Joseph would have felt. Looks like all opportunity is gone. The door is shut. This is this is my destiny. Just die in this dungeon. Die in this dungeon. But things were about to change. Verses 1 through 7 describe Pharaoh having two dreams. The first one was about seven healthy cows being eaten by seven thin and scrawny cows. And the second dream, back to back, was seven heads of healthy grain being swallowed up by seven heads of grain that were thin and scorched. Pharaoh's troubled. He's seeking answers. Nobody can help him. Verse 8 says, none were able to interpret it. Now, the sovereign God brought Joseph, the one who interpreted his dreams to the cupbearer's mind. And he immediately mentioned Joseph to Pharaoh. That's what verses 9 through 13 is all about. As Pharaoh sent for Joseph and mentioned that he had heard about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, notice the humble response of Joseph in verse 16. I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Reminds us of the Apostle Paul who warned the proud Corinthians who were showing off their gifts about the importance of humility. First Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? Answer, God. What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? That's humility there. Whatever gifts, talents God has given to us, God gets all the glory. One good test to see if you're humble people is. We might say when someone says, thank you, God gets all the glory. We might say that. But do we really mean it? I'll tell you how we can know if we really mean it. When we do something and it goes unrecognized and no one even thanks us, how do we respond? If we are dejected, if we are disappointed, then deep inside there was a craving for recognition. Think about that. We know Joseph meant it because he was a God-fearing and a humble man. The rest of the chapter explains Joseph interpreting the two dreams which were actually pointing to the same things. God was about to bring seven years of plenty followed by seven years of a devastating famine that would ravage the land and that Pharaoh needed to take immediate action. And being the man who was gifted by God, with great wisdom, Joseph also went on to propose a solution to Pharaoh in verses 33 to 36, a solution that involved two things. One, Pharaoh appointing a wise man to oversee the affairs of the entire land. And two, Pharaoh appointing commissioners all over the land to collect a fifth of the harvest during the seven years of plenty and store them for the future seven years of famine. As a side note, 
many believe this act of Pharaoh collecting a fifth of the produce of the income formed the basis of the taxation system that governments follow today where a citizen in keeping with his or her income would pay the government taxes. Pharaoh and his officials agreed that Joseph's plan was good. Notice what happened next, verse 39. The Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, Pharaoh acknowledges, this cannot come from you, Joseph, just as you said, it's from God. There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. He is now, so to speak, the prime minister of Egypt. Second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And verse 46 says, Joseph was 30 years old when he started serving Pharaoh. 13 years from the time he was sold by his brothers. Remember he was 17. Chapter 37. Now he's 30. 13 years have passed. And verses 47 to 52 describe the seven years of plenty in keeping with Joseph's words and how Joseph ensured the collection of the grain and for their storage in various cities during that time. He builds storehouses in cities so cut down the time of transportation and distribution later becomes easier. So he's building all these storehouses. Everything was done to, in preparation for the famine. It also talks about during this time Joseph was married by now having two sons Manasseh and Ephraim. And then look at verses 53 to 54 that describe the end of the good years and the start of the famine. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. And the chapter ends with these words in verse 57 and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. We're going to stop with that because the stage is now set for Joseph's brothers to come to Egypt to buy grain and run into Joseph as a result of the famine hitting Canaan also. And we're going to see the beautiful, gracious and forgiving nature of Joseph. One thing to talk about Joseph's character being of the highest quality, but another thing is for us to learn how forgiving this man was. But that's next time. That's next time. We're going to still look at four lessons today as we look at the life of Joseph. Remember one of the, uh, the two reasons was why Joseph's account is here is because Joseph's life is worthy of imitation. Not just admiration, but also imitation. Joseph's story does encourage us in knowing how God uses obedient servants of his to accomplish his purposes even in the midst of great persecution and severe opposition. So I want to give you four lessons, four uh, truths as we strive to imitate Joseph's godly and faithful life. In that way, we apply those in our lives. We too can have the joy and the privilege of being used by God. Doesn't mean if we have these characteristics, we'll be exalted in this world in terms of high position. A lot of people look at Joseph and say, why follow Joseph's life? I'll also be exalted in my workplace or in the community. That is not the point of Joseph's story. That's not the point of imitating a Daniel, so to speak. So we will be prime ministers of the places where God keeps us. The key is faithfulness. A life of integrity a life of faithfulness is so that God can accomplish His purposes 
in whatever ways he has chosen for your life and mine. Lesson number one for us to learn or something that we can consider learning is there are times we will pay a high price for our obedience, but we cannot shrink back when those times come. High price to pay for our obedience. Joseph paid a high price, didn't he, for resisting Mrs. Potiphar's advances. He knew the ramifications of fearing God and loving your neighbor, but he still persisted even when the price he had to pay was years in prison. From the pit, from the cistern that the brothers put from the pit to the prison, life is getting lower and lower for Joseph and for no fault of his. That's important to remember. Yet he remained steadfast. And so must we. Jesus told us in Mark chapter 13 verse 13, everyone will hate you because of me. Potiphar or Mrs. Potiphar hated Joseph because he lived for God. Everyone will hate me because of, everyone will hate you because of me, because of your identification with me, because of you keeping my word. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. While this is specifically stated in the context of the time of the Great Tribulation, I think the extended principle applies at all times as a follower of Jesus. The world hates me, the world is going to hate you. Elsewhere in John 15 he said. But the good news is this. We don't have to persevere just by relying on our own strength. The Holy Spirit will help all who seek to obey Jesus no matter the cost. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.8. He will also keep you firm to the end. On the one hand, Jesus says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. But also, the encouragement is, He will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the motivation for us not to shrink back, but to commit ourselves to persevere as we lean on the Holy Spirit for strength. Again, you see the divine side and the human side in tandem, working together so that we will be willing to pay a high price. Remember, Jesus paid the highest price for his obedience to the Father's command as he went to the cross for our sins. Since he did not shrink back for sinners like you and me, how can we, who've been bought by his blood, shrink back from standing firm for the sake of his glory? We cannot and we must not. And as a side note here, if any among you today is still far away from Jesus. You're not coming to him because you feel, if I come to Jesus, I will lose friends. I will lose this. I will lose that. I will alienate people. People look down on me. Because you have to pay a high price for Jesus. Let me assure you, he is worthy of your total allegiance. Nobody died to pay the price for your sins. And let me assure you, no one rose again and no one will rise again from the grave on their own. So don't be afraid. Ask this Jesus to help you turn from your sins and turn to him in order to accept the forgiveness he offers. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit will come to live inside of you and he will give you the courage and the strength to stand firm no matter the cost. So that's lesson number one. Don't shy away from being willing to pay a high price. Lesson number two, we must be relentless in pursuing sexual purity. We cannot afford to relax even one bit in this area. If there's one area where the enemy is extra relentless 
It is in the area of sexual purity. The Apostle Paul says in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18, All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And in the next two verses, he would go on to describe how our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, meaning it's the place where the Holy Spirit lives, whom God the Father has given as a gift to us. And not only for that reason, it's also because we're bought by Jesus. That's why we are to honor the triune God with our bodies by pursuing sexual purity. Now, there's a little more to this. Usually we take these verses and uh, appropriate it to our individual lives. Of course, that's there. But but Paul, uh, because of how he, in, in, in 1 Corinthians, he has this idea of the corporate sense. Because chapter 3, he talks about the, the, the uh, whole church, the body of Christ is a temple. So what Paul is saying here, because the you here is all in, in the plural sense, what, what Paul is saying is this, listen, when you sexually defile yourself, you're affecting the entire body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, individually the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. You are committing a grievous sin against the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. And how did the Holy Spirit come to live inside of you? Because Christ paid the price. He shed his blood. And this is how God the Father ordained. So he brings the whole uh, trinity here into the picture individually and collectively as a body. In other words, sexual sin affects us individually, but also affects the body of Christ. That is why he says in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. And that's exactly what Joseph did, didn't he? He left his coat, he ran to preserve his sexual purity, and honor God with this individual body. It becomes more extensive when we think about our time as a church. I tell you, before Joseph physically ran, he kept running away mentally each time Mrs. Potiphar kept tempting him. Remember how chapter 39 verse 10 says, she spoke to Joseph day after day and how he kept refusing to go to bed with her or even be with her. Why? Because mentally he was running away. Only because mentally he could run away. Physically, eventually when the situation came, he ran away. If we look at the opposite sex, people made an image of God. And sometimes fellow sister in Christ or fellow brother has a potential sexual partner when we see them or fantasize about them. Physically, if the opportunity comes, we will fall. Because mentally we're not running away. Every time. Mentally we should run away. That's why the thought life matters a lot. That's why Jesus said, you lust in your heart. You'll eventually what? Do the physical act. You are sinning as you're lusting in your heart. We cannot give even an inch in this area because the enemy seeks to take a mile. Remember all sin and especially all other sins outside the body. There's a, there's a stress that Paul is giving there. The sexual sin causes greater damage than you can imagine. Sexual sin, all sin for that matter, but especially sexual sin will most certainly take you and me farther than we intend to go. There's no such thing as just one click of that image 
or one click of that article that sounds tempting, that headline that sounds tempting. No such thing as innocent flirting or casual touching when there's lust in the heart. No such thing. The devil and our flesh will keep tempting us like Mrs. Potiphar day after day, minute after minute. That is why we need to constantly keep relying on the Holy Spirit, pray diligently, read and memorize scriptures faithfully to do that mental running away. So when the situation arises physically, we will have the strength to run away. Sometimes you might find yourself physically not having the strength to run away because mentally you have not cultivated the discipline of running away. And we must also be practically wise, avoid being in tempting situations. We cannot stay close to the fire and not feel its warmth. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. We will burn ourselves. That's why Solomon rightly warns his son to stay away from the immoral woman by these words in Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 8. Keep, a, keep to a path far from her or him. Do not go near the door of her or his house. Far, far. Don't think you can go to the doorstep and stop there. That's what Solomon says. He's warning his son. Is any godly father or mother would do to their children, but you cannot do that if you yourself are not keeping your path far from temptation. doesn't matter the age. Remember David committed Bathsheba with adultery when he was in his 50s. 50s. I can fall. Easily. If I'm not being watchful. Pleading to the Lord. Crying. I need you. I need you. So stay far from sexual sin. That's the second lesson we can learn from Joseph's life. Lesson three. We must be faithful wherever God calls us to serve. The place or the position never really matters. What matters is faithfulness to God. It's all that matters. You know, it's amazing. Some of the people say, if I were in another situation, I'd be faithful. No, you won't. No, you won't. You're deceiving yourself. Joseph submitted to God's sovereignty over all affairs of life. That's why he remained faithful wherever God placed him, whether it was in Potiphar's house. In the prison, he could have really given up. This is what I get for living a pure life? He could have given up. But even in the prison, he kept serving faithfully. For, for Joseph, place or the position didn't matter one bit. What mattered, was, what mattered to him was, I need to be faithful to you, God, in fulfilling my duties to you and being a benefit to fellow human beings. Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3, verses 23 through 24, whatever you do, whatever you do, as broad as broad as it can get, work at it with all your heart. Pour yourself into it. Pour yourself into it as working for the Lord, not for human masters. If you're a homemaker, if you're working in a company, if you're owning your own business, it doesn't matter. What Paul says here is this, work at it with all your heart without grumbling and complaining and you know, seeking glory from people. The constant need for affirmation. We don't need that. Because what does he say here? You're working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And that's 
then, not now. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. You know why we get discouraged often at work? Or whatever role that God's called us? Because we don't get that affirmation from human beings. That's because deep inside that's what we're seeking. I want people to notice me. And when that doesn't come, we sit and moan. Now I'm not talking about there are genuine tough situations at work. This is hard. Saying this is hard, trying to make a change or even moving a job, that's not the issue here. But this craving and this obedience that comes only if everything is according to what I think I deserve is not the way Joseph lived. He was faithful wherever God called him to serve and we must be faithful in where God calls us to serve because not only is God pleased, we're blessing others. If God has kept us at a certain point, in a certain location, certain type of job, certain type of a sphere, He's kept us there for a reason. So come Monday morning tomorrow, those who go out to work or even those who are homemakers, we start every week. Today is the first day of the week. But we go with that attitude. God, give me this attitude to be faithful to you and to be a blessing to my fellow neighbors, whether they're believers or not. You get the glory. You get the glory. It's the Lord Christ we are serving. Faithful in the little, we can be faithful when entrusted with much. Jesus, at the end of his life, as he prayed to the Father, said in John 17, 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. He was faithful to the very end. Faithful to the very end. I fought the good fight. I finished the race, said another great servant of the Lord, the Apostle Paul. So wherever God keeps us, whether you have a title under your name or not, it doesn't really matter. Your only identity is in Christ. That is enough. That's the only title that will matter for all eternity. Right? So faithfulness in the little is what God calls us. And when he, if it is his will to entrust us with much, Again, faithfulness in the much as well. Where God keeps us, may we strive to bring glory to Him in all that we do at all times. Lesson number four. We must not get discouraged when answers to our prayers seem to be delayed. Why? Because we don't know all the reasons for the delays this side of heaven. But often, you know, when prayers get delayed, answers to prayers get delayed, or when this waiting goes on, we say, how long, how long, how long? We even give up and sometimes even get bitter. But notice that was not the case with Joseph. Let me give you an example. I mentioned earlier, God's delays are beyond our understanding. When it came to the cupbearer, forgetting Joseph's request as soon as he got out. Hypothetical situation. Cupbearer got out. Right away he goes to Pharaoh. Hey Pharaoh, thank you for bringing me back. Appreciate that, etc., etc. I got a small favor to ask. I mean, he's got Pharaoh's ear. He's the chief cupbearer. Pharaoh, I met this fellow in prison. He interpreted the dreams for me. I mean, as a favor, can you let him out? And what if Pharaoh said, yes, let him out. Joseph got out of the prison. Where would Joseph have been? Ordinary guy in Egypt. How could he even think of bringing his family? Right? Think about that. That would have been the reality. But now, two years later, that's a waiting time for Joseph. Hard, hard times. But 
God would bring a dream to Pharaoh, two dreams. And now Pharaoh would see Joseph in a different light. And through that, not only will his family come, but they would be preserved through the famine. If two years prior to Joseph had come out, how would anyone have survived the famine? Because it was Joseph's wisdom that led to Pharaoh building all the storage centers and saving it. Did Joseph know all that during those two years? He had no clue. But he still kept faithfully pressing on and being faithful to God. That is why it is important for us because we will never see the full picture this side of heaven to not give up. To not give up. While God calls us to wait in that process, God is also working in us. God is working in us. Joseph simply trusted God because he had learned by now that God's ways are often beyond human understanding. So don't give up. Don't give up when you feel your answers are not coming in the time or in the manner you would like. God is working his plans in making you and I like his son Jesus Christ. And that often involves waiting without answers, even during very dark times. And waiting longer doesn't guarantee the great elevation. Sometimes they say, because I waited long, God is now obligated to lift me up. As though the duration of the waiting equates to the height of the exaltation. That doesn't make any sense either. Because again, there's a selfish motive in our waiting. Our waiting is only because we want to submit to the Lord. Let Him do whatever He chooses to do in our lives. Exaltation comes, comes not from the north or the south, east or the west. It comes from God. We're already seated in the heavenly places. What more do we want? Everything else is just for a few petty years. That's all. That's all. Wait on the Lord. And during those times of waiting, when we feel discouraged, when we feel giving up, let the encouraging and comforting words of the writer of Hebrews who wrote to discouraged believers come to our mind. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12. The, the writer says, We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Notice, how do you inherit what has been promised? Faith and patience. It takes faith to be patient, to persevere. Listen, all will end well in eternity. In eternity, for those who in faith patiently wait for God to accomplish all His plans to His people. His people are united with Jesus. So don't get discouraged. Again, don't get discouraged when delays come. They are great opportunities. And one of the greatest means the potter is using to shape us, the clay, to become more and more like His Son who remained patient to the very end. So four life lessons. God teaches us a lot more, but at least it's four to help us perhaps think about these things so we can imitate, imitate Joseph, apply them in our lives. There are times, lesson number one, we will pay a high price for our obedience. Perhaps many don't hear not paying a high price because we're just unwilling to pay the high price. We compromise as soon as things get tough. I'm not saying we should go seek to be martyrs, but when we give our hearts to wholehearted obedience, inevitably there will be a high price to pay. But when we cannot, we cannot shrink back. 
when such times come lesson number 2 got to be relentless in pursuing sexual purity we cannot afford to relax even one bit it doesn't take much to fall don't put yourself in tempting situations there is no such thing in the scriptures absolutely not one hint even about evangelistic dating god has brought this person into my life so that through me they'll be saved you're not that important god can save that person any way he chooses to you're putting yourself in that spot you'll fall the longer you are in that the deeper and deeper you're going down so number 3 we must be faithful wherever god calls us to serve wherever wherever bloom where you're planted said one old writer the place or the position should never matter to the believer story is told about two angels sent from heaven one to sweep the streets and the other one to be the king the conclusion was both the angels would do those jobs with equal joy equal faithfulness because for them the position doesn't matter only faithfulness to the one who sent them matters that should be the heart of the believer wherever you keep me lord i want to be faithful and last lesson don't get discouraged when prayers answers to prayers seem to be delayed we don't know all the reasons even if it is a no it's coming from the good and nail pierced hand of the lord so how can it be bad how can it be bad we ask for something god says no it's still a good thing because it's passing through the nail pierced hands of our savior the one who loves us and has committed himself to bring us into eternity safe and sound even though there might be some bruises the journey would be rocky but the destination destination is secure we will reach we will reach more to learn from joseph's life but that's for next time take some time go through these chapters ponder reflect for yourself but until then let's keep praying until next time let's keep praying asking the holy spirit to impress these four lessons and lord willing many more as the spirit brought to your attention so that uh, jesus christ would be glorified father we just want to thank you for life of joseph the secret is not in joseph's individual strength or power but your spirit working in him so thank you for his life thank you for recording that in the scriptures so many truths so many things to learn we feel convicted feel humbled but that's a good thing humble us even more knowing that lord jesus you were far more faithful and obedient than joseph was but more importantly as our savior you've secured the means for our forgiveness and you're you're also securing a place for us and we are kept secure until you come and take us to be home so why should we fear what can mere mortals do to me help us lord just to fear you love you and walk in your ways and strive to be a blessing to the people around us two of the greatest commandments love you and love our neighbor let that be evident in our lives this coming week and if there is anyone far away from you please bring them to yourself this very moment so that jesus christ would be praised once again 
as another person joins the heavenly choir. Thank you, Jesus, for your work. In your name we pray. Amen.